Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and joining us today is certified financial planner and founder of Witten Financial Services, Aaron Witten. Thanks for joining me today, Aaron. Uh, it's my pleasure, Amy. How you been? I have been great. Thank you for Good. asking. Good. So one of my favorite places to start off these podcasts is to ask my guests to tell our audience their story. So let's start with how you got started in the profession and how did you get to where you are today? <laughs> I, I, I will be very direct on this and saying only by the grace of God, right? Okay, but, but, to, but to be more precise, um, I went to school not knowing any of this at University in Western Kentucky, um, go tops. And uh, I actually went to school, um, didn't know what I wanted to do. So I majored in chemistry. So my undergraduate degree is in chemistry with a minor in music. And uh, so um, I've got very eclectic musical tastes, so um, we won't go into that. But the thing is, is that um, got out of school, couldn't find a job in chemistry, uh, was engaged to my now wife, and mom calls me up one day and she said, I'm really bothered about you not having a job, right? And you're going to get married in nine months and, you know, and so I just can't. I just can't bless your marriage if you don't have a job. And I was like, I was a little stunned. I was like, okay. So I literally just said, well, the next person that calls me, I'm just going to take a job. And it was a brokerage in Nashville. Um, and they said, we'll teach you everything you need to know. And I said, I can't even balance my checkbook. And you want me to manage other people's money, right? I, like that just, you know, puzzled me. And so I said, oh, I want to get married. Sure, why not? And I went down there and they, they were a mutual fund and, and insurance operation. And um, sure enough, they put me through the steps for the Series 6 and the 63 and the insurance stuff. And I've become fascinated with the topic. Like I wish someone had told me about the importance of saving 50 bucks a month in a mutual fund or something 10 years earlier, right? Um, so become like a lifelong disciple of the field and have just never stopped learning. Like uh, it just, the field just fascinates me. So is that a good short version of, of the story? Absolutely perfect about how you got started. And then what happened after that? Because there's a jump, um, you know, a leap between how we get started. And so many of us, I call it accidentally. And, uh, and then where we land. So uh, give us a little bit more about that journey on how you landed where you are today. Basically, the timing of landing at the, the brokerage in Nashville um, was pre-dot-com bubble. So it was late 1999. Um, I'd gone on to win several uh, branch, branch awards, you know, for sales production and things like that. Was training their new reps, actually and uh, uh, had become a securities principal. You know, was great, you know, working in the office, moving up the ladder, you know, happily married now, you know, building our home and uh, started getting some pressure on trying to clear transactions that weren't appropriate. And I just felt the need to leave, right? It wasn't because anybody was being nasty. I was just like, I, I train these people, they're my friends. You know, I'm disappointed that they've made these decisions, but I'm not going to sign off on them. And so 
just left of my own volition, um, took about a 90% pay cut and went into private practice because they immediately took all my clients in the Nashville area and uh, moved back home to where we're from in Litchfield. My, my wife worked for my parents at the time. Uh, she did photo retouching. And so, you know, when that used to be a thing, you now do it on your phone. But uh, moved back home Christmas of 2000. Uh, yeah, Christmas of 2000. And have been in private practice ever since. So, so you kind of touched on a couple of things there. As people are on this journey, I've found that it takes a fair amount of what I call entrepreneurial spirit, if you will. Um, I remember hearing that maybe around age 10, you actually started your own business. It was very different than financial services, but it was selling sports and trading cards, if I remember right. Um, so talk about that and uh, talk about what motivates you. Some may call it the, the entrepreneurial itch that you have. Sure. That oh, isn't yeah. the only business, if I remember correctly. So, yeah, that, that's a very interesting part of the journey was basically my, my parents were school teachers. So, you know, I didn't, I won't say I necessarily didn't have what I needed growing up, right? They always were good providers and those things and supportive in what I did, but that didn't get everything I wanted, right? You know, so in general, I've, I'm very fortunate to have had the parents I did uh, or do still, they're still around. But I remember this conversation with my dad uh, about age nine, I wanted to go to the store and buy something, right? I didn't, know about money necessarily. We got a dollar a week allowance so to date myself here. And he says, well, if you, if you want this, you got to save up and buy it. Well, I didn't want to do that. I was trying to convince him otherwise. And he just said, you know, I don't have any more. Like you're, you're going to either have to do that or make your own money. Well, that's when the light bulb went on. And uh, I was an avid baseball fan at the time, kept records at the local little league park and all that stuff. And so I just took some cards from my personal collection and he owned a photo studio at the time and gave me a corner of his shop and I was in business at 10 years old and uh, it, it was a whirlwind like that. Again, didn't have the money knowledge right to go along with it, but that's where a lot of the business acumen come from because I got to make mistakes on a very small level early in life and learn from those. And so um, between 10 and college, so at about maybe age 20, I ran the sports car business and it helped buy my first car. It helped buy my second car. Uh, there's no telling how much money I blew right beyond that. But uh, yeah, it just was a solution to, to a problem I had. And I've owned one iteration of a business or another or multiples ever since. So I really love entrepreneurialism. So I don't hear a lot these days, and maybe it's just because I'm not having the right conversations um, about the inspiration that your dad gave you to get out there at such a young age. I think with inflation, a dollar, did you say a dollar a week? Yeah, it was a dollar a week. You mm -hmm. know, that's easily a hundred dollars a week today, probably to get a kid <laughs> yeah. to do anything, right? Right, right. Um, so it's very different, but how, how important do you think those kinds of conversations become in financial literacy? And do you have, do you encourage your clients to have those conversations with their children? Yes, yes, all the time. Um, I. I think it's a very overlooked part of a lot of people's financial planning is, is bringing their children into the loop. And sometimes it's adult children. Sometimes it's little children, like I was with my dad. But the thing was, is, you know, I, 
I can't say I learned a tremendous amount of my money acumen from my parents, but that was only because they didn't know either. It wasn't a, well, you're too young to know this. They just knew what they knew, being school teachers, and dad had just, dad had been in a couple businesses, and my mom, my mom made wedding cakes until my brother and I got in school, uh, and so she, 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 not only was she making beautiful wedding cakes, but she had to keep our fingers out of them because we're toddlers running around the house, and so, so they both had some entrepreneurial enterprises that went off with varying degrees of success, and so they did teach me that part right, I guess, right, that, you know, you, you can make your own destiny, like just you've got to find the opportunity and make it happen, and so that's where I feel like I took the most from my parents was not being afraid to try, not being afraid to be told I'm, you're crazy, and then push through anyway, not that you've seen any of that for me, but the thing is, is that so much, so much more good has come from that process of me being told I'm crazy and then pushing through than the bad that has happened, or then people get to point and laugh and say, I told you so. So I'm, an, I'm purely a numbers analytical geek. If there's more bad than, or there's more good than bad coming out of something, then you probably want to continue doing that something. And so that's why I'm not, I'm more conservative than I used to be with businesses and risk, because now the businesses are larger. When you start adding zeros, as you're probably very well aware, you're afraid to make sudden bold moves because, well, if it's working already, right, you don't want to endanger the lives or the livelihood of all those who look up to you for leadership. And so the thing is, is that, yeah, I learn in life as we go on and as we make more good decisions, the numbers get bigger, makes it a little more scary, right, to make those decisions, but I keep on coming back to fundamentals, learning those lessons from a very young age about, hey, wait a second, I've seen this movie before and it doesn't end well, let's go a different route, and that, in my opinion, I guess makes me a unique person from the standpoint that my age probably doesn't accurately reflect the experience end of things. I've always fooled people, right? When I walk into a room, they're just like, ah, he's just a 40-something whatever, and then whatever comes out of my mouth, and they're like, whoa, and, and, I, and I can't cite those things. I don't know. I think it's just part of the way my mind works, but I'm, I'm very blessed and fortunate to have the mind that I do for those type of analytical things, because sometimes I'm an outlier, like you mentioned the New Century Council, I'm an outlier. I'm on an island by myself sometimes and just raise my hand and be like, well, what about this? And then everybody's like, what? You know, and sometimes they're like, you're crazy, Aaron, sit down, right, whatever. And then other times they're like, no, wait, wait a second, like he's got a point. So I just keep trying. I guess that's the short answer of what you, of your question. So Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up. So great segue. Let's talk about your work in both our new Century Council, which for our guests, um, I will share is a group of advisors who self-nominate themselves to help Cambridge build for the future. So we have lots of other advisor councils that are dealing with one year out kind of things, but this council 
albeit difficult sometimes for us, tries to focus on three, four, five, or even beyond if we can get there on what, you know, what the industry is going to look like. So tell us a, a little bit about your role there. And also you're on our faith-based investing council. Um, so let's talk about both of those things. Oh, sure. Sure. Well, um, the New Century Council, I remember, I guess this is my second term or I'm coming close to the end of the second term. And um, I remember being encouraged. I don't know. I'd only been at Cambridge about a year, maybe. I remember being encouraged by either it was my business coach, shout out to Tonya Pfeiffer, or somebody saying, hey, you might fit in well here with your business analytics, you know, and I said, sure, why not? And so I was completely floored when I got accepted because I was like, man, I don't even understand Cambridge. I've only been here a year. Now all of a sudden I'm here, you know, with, with the executive's ear, you know, and I'm like, okay. And I remember some of those earlier meetings, like being nearly an outsider, but being welcomed, right? I never felt like I was out of place. Um, but I'll just say there's a lot of big producers in that room and I don't necessarily check that box. But, uh, but the thing is, is a lot of smart people, a lot of people I respect. And uh, when I was actually able to contribute some things that first year, I was like, well, this is no different than analyzing any other business. Again, it's that whole shifting of a, shifting of a decimal point thing. Like the decision process doesn't become harder or easier just because the number becomes bigger. It's still the same process. So if you can get over the fear, right, you know, it's human to only be a little afraid and a little conservative. If you can get over the fear factor, the analysis is the same. So once... Once I opened my mouth and didn't insert my shoe in it for the first time and some got some nods, I'm like, okay, maybe I belong at the table here, you know? So, um, so I'm very fortunate, very blessed to be part of that group. Love the problem-solving aspects of that group. Still want to be involved in it. The, uh, the faith-based investing thing, that was a newer one, I think, that has come up in the last couple of years, or it's been more formalized. And we're, we're still tiny at this point, but we've got a small core of advisors um, that are meeting regularly, doing Kingdom Advisors Bible studies monthly uh, on behalf of Cambridge. Check out Cambridge Nation, right? We put posts in there when we have our meetings. But um, it's been interesting so far because I know Cambridge has been going through some innovation as well with tech systems and things like that. So um, we haven't had a tremendous amount to do at the moment, but I feel like we're getting ready to get busy. Well, thank you for contributing your time to both of those things. I think these are the kind of things that make us better is when we listen to our clients and engage with them to help us figure out what we should be investing in, in the future. And, you know, the faith-based investing may be small, but I feel very much from my perspective anyway, that it's small, but mighty. There's a lot of really, really interesting that come up and, ESG, uh, even at the higher level as an overall topic is becoming more and more important. I think with faith-based investing being um, you know, a subset of some of that, the next generation investors are really going to demand that they can find what they're looking for in an investment philosophy right out of the gate. People don't understand what they're investing in, you know, good or bad, right? I'm just saying it, it's, it's, a, it's more of a just not knowing. But people don't realize that some of the companies you can invest in, like it's about making money, which it should be in fairness. Okay, I'm an entrepreneur, right? I don't blame many companies for making money. However, I have a soul. So I tend to shy away from companies that, that are abusing the environment unnecessarily or, or human rights or whatever. And just recently have shifted a lot of my managed money to 
um, ESG funds that I feel are going to provide similar returns without all the risk. And, uh, and they've been doing really well. Like I think companies that have good shareholder policy, well, not shareholder policy, but just good steward policies, right, of their, their resources and their community and things like that, tend to actually perform better. And um, I can say I live out what, what I'm practicing here. So tell us a little bit about um, more about your business in terms of um, how do you find clients? Where do you find clients? What kind of client um, is your ideal client that you enjoy working with? And, and do you have a process or is it case by case unique for each client that walks in the door? You know, I think there's more process to it than I want to put credit on. But as far as me having a checklist saying, do this, 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 I can't say that I've got one on paper. I think subconsciously I do. Our target client typically is a small business owner. That's really what we concentrate on because a small business owner and a small business owner can be a solo entrepreneur, so a doctor or a lawyer or something like that because they need help too. That's our bread and butter. I think that ties back into my entrepreneurialism from an early age. I've been there, done that, made a lot of those mistakes before and can warn other people, hey, don't go down that path. Here's what happened to me. And I think that really buttons up that market for us in our area because, again, entrepreneurs don't want to make a mistake that will endanger their or somebody else's livelihood. I think they're all very caring people, even though they may take more risk than the average you know, consumer. But that means, but they're insecure. You know, I, I, I've been through all this. I still go through this. They're insecure about making that big decision that could be the breakthrough to make their company add a zero to the revenues or whatever, because those decisions get more costly if you mess up. And so the thing is, is that I love, I, it just brings me great joy to get a hold of a young doctor or, or like I just brought on a trust company has 25 employees, they're Amish even, right? So that, that's kind of interesting working with a low-tech company like that. But just seeing the same insecurity in their minds and in their voices that I've had many times over making similar decisions and being able to be that person that says, you got this, like you, your instinct is correct on this one, go down that path. And, and if for some reason we're both wrong, I'll be glad to, to cry on your milk with you because because there's nothing guaranteed in entrepreneurialism other than you'll pay taxes, you know, uh, but uh, if you're successful, you're going to pay taxes. Uh, I love those phone calls. Like, why am I going to pay so much in taxes? Well, you had a good, good problem to have. Yay. Yes. Like you succeeded. Like you're, you're, you're in the minority of small business in America. That's wonderful. Let's build off of that. And um, you've been doing this now for 23 years. Your business has evolved a little bit. What advice would you give someone thinking about entering our industry today? It is tough to get started in, in this industry, let alone this environment. And I feel like I feel like the way I come up in 99, most people can't do that. They don't have the money to do that. Um, when I started 99, I was commission only, 40% grid, had no overhead though. And they gave me an office and a phone. So I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. I get, to, I, get to, I get to take on 40% of what I make. Okay, cool. You know? And the thing was, is that 
while you can probably still find offices like that, they're rare these days because they they want producers. They don't want somebody that's going to get licensed and then they have to pay all those FINRA fees and E&O and stuff and you're not producing anything. So the overhead is way different than it was 23 years ago because I don't know of many firms or insurance companies or whatever you want to call it that would make such an offer anymore. They're going to want you to front the cost of those licenses or the exams or, or something to know you have skin in the game. I mean, it took me, I would say it took me about a year before I actually made good money to where I felt like I could sustain our family and stuff. And that was with no kids and not many bills because I didn't get those until we got married. So the thing is, is in this environment, I think it's, not doing a service to a young person getting in the industry to like try to at least cover their overhead or give them a, a, a minimum wage or something and get them involved in those lower level processes and do it as more of a mentoring type thing. Because back 23 years ago, it was it was kill or be killed, right? It was very you know commission-based, like go make something happen. We didn't have teams. We didn't have planners and this and that. And so it literally was knocking on doors and handing out business cards and law of large numbers. You knock on enough doors, you, you'll get you'll get sales. I don't think you can do that anymore. Like, I, I, I just don't feel like you can do that anymore because people have evolved. You know, they're like, why do I need to deal with you? I've got other things I can do for free, like online and stuff. So I, so the advice I give young people, right, Make sure you've got income source in your family other than what you're going to be doing in the securities industry, um, which for me, that, that worked the same for me. Laura had a stable job with my parents' company when I decided to go down this path okay, of making no money for a while, okay, while I got my business up and going. Then it was pretty neat because eventually it flipped. Like at the end of 2009, she, she actually worked in our game company as our marketing manager, and she's just like, I think I'm done with working. And I just said, okay, we're agreed, right? You know, make the jump. And so she's, she's, she, well, I say done with working, done with working for pay. Let's, 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 let's clarify that, right? She works very hard with raising our two sons. Many blessings have come from that decision. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. I think you brought up a couple of really good points. One is that today's world has changed. And um, our business definitely is demanding uh, flexible comp schedules. We can talk about flexible work schedules all day long, but long before COVID started driving that, it, it was more around what you're talking about, which is um, the old days of warehouses and insurance companies training them from the bottom up and giving them phone numbers to call and doors to knock on is no longer, it no longer exists. And so some sort of comp schedule that gives them a runway to success is really important. And you hit on the second one too, in my opinion, which is teaming. Very rarely do we see somebody coming out of, call it their 20s or even 30s saying, I'm going to go work by myself and build a solo business. They're going to work with people like you or a team of, you know, them that they've found um, to, to, because it's more, it, it is more in line with how they want to work instead of, again, the old guard that felt not right or wrong, just different that an entrepreneur, you know, built their own thing all by themselves. So it's, it's good that you recognize this. And then the third thing is the fact that 
what hasn't changed is there's a little bit of risk involved, right? So you and your wife maybe took the risk to some extent on her end when she decided to become what I call, because I have one of those people that stayed home as well, the CEO of the Weber household, or in your case, she... She is the CEO or maybe the COO, you could pick a title, but uh, right, they keep the house running and the kids thriving while we're doing whatever it is we need to do. But that is a family risk and, and something that the family has to assess as they try to build a career path. Well, right. And, and I mean, especially in this day and age, like you brought up the fact with inflation and things like that, things are not cheap. And so... To go back to the way we were, let's say, in the 40s and 50s, when the average American family could rely on one household income and then have that CEO of the household uh, as well, it's been a long time since the average American has been able to do that. I, I'm completely fortunate that we are in that situation. And, you know, occasionally sometimes money gets tight, but it's typically controllable right at this point. Like it's the only reason money will get tight is because we decided to buy something we didn't need or something. So it, it it's it's all relative. Yeah. Congratulations. So we've started talking about your family. Let's um, let's talk about um, you're very involved in your community. Tell us how you like to give back and why you think it's important. I'm a giver by nature. I think a lot of my peers may be listening that are, are givers by nature also, because I feel like in order to, to do what we do for a living as planners or advisors or whatever you want to call us, you've got to have this spirit of wanting to help people. And so whether you're writing a check to a charity or not, I'm talking about giving from the sense of giving of your time, giving of your knowledge. Um, you know, there's lots of consults I have that never turn into a dollar, okay? And that's part of the giving too. So one way I'm involved in the communities, yeah, those free consults where somebody's just like, hey, I'm in, you know, need some budgeting help or I'm in tax trouble or whatever, give them a couple hours of my time, point them in the right direction and send them on their way. Sometimes those come and become clients down the road. A lot of times they don't, but, but that's okay. I feel better knowing that I helped them avoid a landmine or something. Other ways, I mean, I'm probably my biggest civic involved is Lions, Lions Club International. Um, and we're just about helping our communities where they're at, right? So I, I'm the treasurer of the Litchfield Lions Club, um, and we typically help our community just in whatever ways needed. Trash pickup days, we raise money for local charities that don't have the fundraising power we do. Um, we, we end up spending a lot of time giving a lot of money away each year because we're very fortunate that people recognize the lines as kind of a, a, a do-all in our community. It doesn't matter if it's supporting the food pantry or the animal shelter or building a playground for foster kids or right, whatever, whatever the community need is, we've been involved in doing that. You know, other civic involvement, um, yes. Uh, I mean, it's just, it, that's basically the answer, yes. Um, I am just a big proponent in giving back, be it of your time, of your resources or whatever. It's not a marketing thing. Client work can come of those things, right? I'm not saying it, it's purely philanthropic, I guess. But if you have that attitude going in, you're going to be disappointed, you know, because it's, it's more of a human connection thing, human collateral. Being involved in your community helps you to meet other good human beings. And what I've learned is when you when you surround yourself with good human beings, it only improves you. 
it, it, it's going to do more to improve you than it than you will ever have an impact on them. And it gives you a different perspective on life in general. Um, like the old adage, right? You, you, you become who you hang out with. So if you want to be a billionaire, hang out with billionaires or, or whatever. I, I feel like it's what keeps me grounded in civic work is because it puts into perspective how fortunate the Witten household really is, right? In the whole scheme of things. Like that, that to me, that's what's worth it, it the perspective. Yeah, very inspirational. And part of the reason that that question, as well as the one I like to wrap up with, which we'll go to next, are so important to these conversations is giving our listeners who aren't in our business, but back to those people who might be considering our business, or even more importantly, maybe listeners who might be considering using a financial professional because they're do-it-yourselfers today, largely, um, is that, you know, we... I, I think we get a bad rap when we get included with Wall Street. They see those movies that um, make it look like we are all those people with those big heads. So it's, it's really good to make sure that we communicate that 100% of the people that I've interviewed and most of our Cambridge nation are all people who want to give back. Aaron, you talked about your wife and your two sons. Um, tell us who they are and what do the four of you do when you're not working? My wife, Laura, um, we, we, were, we were engaged a couple years before we was married. We met back in college, and her degree is in agriculture, equine science, because she wanted to own a horse farm when she grew up. And uh, it's amazing how life throws curveballs at you, because we don't own any horses and we don't live on a farm. Um, Luke, who is now 17, he's um, an amazingly bright uh, individual. Like, he talks over my head, and I'm just like, that's a talent that is raw right now, but I think he'll find his path, you know, quickly. Computers, video editing, that's kind of his thing, and video games, but he had not make a living paying, playing video games yet, so we're, we're still looking. And then little Asher, he just turned 21 months, and uh, he's our little pandemic baby. Uh, we had him on May 4th, 2020, so he's a Star Wars baby too, which makes, which makes his geek dad very proud. But um, uh, he has Down syndrome, and uh, he is, uh, my goodness, like, I just can't imagine what life is like without him at this point, because, like, I come home, I might have a bad day or whatever, and, like, I come through the door, and he just sit on the floor, and he's just like, hey, that is, and I'm like, it's the cutest thing, and I'm just like, people, they see the few things I post on Facebook, and, and they're just like, does he do this all the time? I said, yeah, that's him, right? Like, that's why I don't post pictures and videos every day because that's him, right? And uh, such a huge blessing for this moment in my life because I feel like this may tie in a little bit to the earlier question about the young entrepreneurs. I feel like I missed a lot of Luke's growing up because at that time I was building my securities practice I, I was involved with the online toy and game company for many years. I was working 100 hours a week because I thought that's what was expected of a young father. Little did I know after Laura left the workforce that, yes, I provided for them. That wasn't the problem. It was they were missing their dad and their husband. And so that 2009-2010 time period really made me reexamine is, is the working 100 hours a week worth it, right? You know, from a, from a financial standpoint, sure. But like, 
I quickly realized about 2010 that I needed to change direction or I was going to miss one of life's biggest joys. And that is my family and being with them and watching them grow and being at the events and things like that. So um, I voluntarily closed my game company 2014. I was like, I don't have time. I love both. They both make money, but I don't have time to be both. And uh, sure enough, three days after I made the decision, painful decision to close a profitable company, like my AUM doubled, like, like walk-ins of all things. Like, and that doesn't happen in this industry, guys. You don't hang a sign and wait for people to walk through your door like Burger King. And I was just like, I made the right choice. Like, uh, like I was unsure that three days. And then when the new, all the new assets walked in, I said, I made the your right sign, choice. Your sign, your sign. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing yourself with us for sure. And your story. Sounds like you've got a wonderful family. I can't wait to meet Asher. So hopefully the next opportunity we have. He's character. He, if he, if he stays with you for about three minutes and blows you a raspberry, <laughs> like he will recognize you and wave at you from across the room from that moment love it. on. I so, love it. Well, thank you for joining us today. Is there anything else that I should have asked you for our listeners that you think they should hear about you or our business that I didn't? I mean, I, I will say that I've been at two or three different broker dealers, kind of got bounced around for a little while. But I will say the honesty, the integrity side of the equation is very strong here and, and the kindness. And so I can't say that about many companies, that they actually live out their core values. And so kudos to you or, or to the secret sauce or to Eric or whatever for instilling those because you all have got a good organization here and I hope to be part of it for a very long time. It takes the whole team and that includes you. So thank you for being a part of the Cambridge family and trusting us. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. We are Cambridge Stronger.